Hey, peoples, it's time for Caffeine with Kunan, and today I am drinking sweet tea. Today, I am joined by Rose O'Hara Jolly to talk about abortion access in Alaska. Rose, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I am very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. And as always, I am drinking probably about my fourth cup of coffee. Uh, today, this afternoon. Uh, yeah, so I am Rose O'Hara Jolly, they, them pronouns. Uh, I lived on the unceded lands of the Lower Tanana Dene uh, for the past five years. Uh, before that, on Atna lands outside of Cantwell. And I am the Alaska State Director at Planned Parenthood Alliance Advocates. I am so excited about this episode. So let's jump right in with the first question. Abortion has been a topic that's been in the news since Roe v. Wade has overturned. Would you mind explaining what this means for Alaskans? Yes, thank you so much for asking this question. So in Alaska, we have a state constitutional right to access an abortion. And so currently nothing has changed in Alaska around abortion access. So even though I know in the news, um, we've heard a lot about 16 states as of right now have either completely lost or partially lost access to abortion. Our strong state constitutional right to privacy has been proven time and time again by our state Supreme Court to include the right to an abortion. And so abortion is still exactly as accessible as it was before Roe was overturned as it is now. I will say, and we're going to talk about it more, that that does not mean it's a given, the same way that it was overturned federally, where it was a right that we thought we all had. There are many ways that they are hoping to erode or remove the right to access an abortion here in Alaska. I also want to point out that legal access um, is not equitable access. And so we should be working here in Alaska to not only protect, but to expand access to abortion and other reproductive health. So in the state of Alaska, not just for abortion access and reproductive health, but all healthcare, people who live off the road system or in rural areas, even on the road systems, do not have the same access to healthcare as others. In the state of Alaska, we also have some of the highest domestic violence and interpartner violence and assault rates, which also just make accessing care harder on many levels and in many ways for many people in our state. So looking forward to talking more about how we can keep protect and expanding abortion access. I was going to ask about the word equitable, but I felt like you described that pretty well when you started describing different situations where some people would have a harder time accessing healthcare. I know that as someone who uses Chief Andrew Isaac here in Fairbanks, how lucky I am to be so close to a clinic where the moment I feel something is wrong, I can call them up and schedule a same day appointment or try to get one as soon as possible. Whereas in my during my most recent pregnancy, a lot of the other people who were in this class that they had created for us, that was really cool. That was both our checkup appointments, as well as education about pregnancy and infant care, those two 
like they had combined it. Most of the people who were in that class with me were from outside of the city. So they had to fly in every time and then had to plan other appointments around this one specific one. So thank you so much for bringing that up. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that story. I think a lot of times for folks, you know, in Fairbanks and Anchorage and Juneau um, who have access to medical care that we really don't sit with how extremely different that access is for others. And so when we're talking about needing to access, you know, abortion care, but also, you know, pregnancy care, uh, pre and postnatal, um, which we'll talk about, it's all part of reproductive justice, you know, is the choice of when and if and how you have children, and then when and if and how you do, those children are also loved and supported and cared for. Um, and all of the parts of that process are equally as important for families to be able to make the best decisions for themselves uh, moving forward. And so when we're talking specifically around abortion access, if you live off the road system or not in Anchorage, Fairbanks, or Juneau, then you will need to travel. And so that could mean buying a plane ticket. We also know in the winter that plane schedules are not reliable. Often people will get grounded and miss their appointment or get grounded and then stuck in a location where they don't have a support network or a place to stay because uh, their flight has been changed leaving. Also, over 50% of folks that access an abortion already have children. So you would need childcare regardless of where your appointment was. But if you were flying for that appointment, then you would need more access, you know, longer access to childcare, which then in a small community, maybe you don't want to tell your auntie where you're going um, and why you're flying to Fairbanks for a medical appointment. But then the layers, if, if you're in an unsafe relationship, can you tell your partner why you're traveling to Fairbanks? Um, or does that put you in further danger? Do you have the financial resources for that plane ticket, which can sometimes be extremely expensive? You know, and then if you're on the road system, like I used to live outside of Cantwell, but I didn't have reliable transportation. So then I'm needing to ask someone to borrow their car, depending on that relationship. Will they let me without needing to divulge something personal about, you know, my medical choices in order to gain access to that car? So when we talk about equitable, we just see all of these layers around access, making it harder and harder and harder for folks to access the care that they need. And so although I think it is extremely important and wonderful that the right is enshrined in our constitution, I think it's important for us in communities that have access to care and have that privilege to really be the voice and push for the expansion of that access for others. This actually leads us right into our next question, which is, why is abortion access important? Yeah. So abortion access is extremely important. And initially, my thought was to go to a group sister song. So at Planned Parenthood, we are a reproductive health and rights organization, uh, but we are not a reproductive justice organization. And so I really look to sister song for a lot of guidance and insight and strength and wisdom when it comes to talking about why abortion access in a reproductive justice lens is so important. Um, and so Sister Song says, 
It's the human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy, have children, not have children, and parent the children that we want um, in a safe and sustainable community. And so when you think about how important abortion access is, um, I think it's important to think about what the reverse of that is. When we look at things like the maternal mortality rate, and especially when we look at the maternal mortality rate when it comes to Black women um, and Indigenous women and people who can get pregnant in those communities, the rates of maternal mortality are sometimes three to four times higher. And so forcing a Black person to carry a pregnancy to term is ostensibly a death sentence for some. Because we know because of systemic racism, because of individual bias and racism in those doctors' office, how we listen to Indigenous women and Black women, you know, and people in general in those situations, their health outcomes are directly related to the pervasiveness of racism in our society. And so it is much more dangerous for a Black person to carry a child to term than for them to access an abortion. Those need, like those systemic issues need to be addressed in general, but while we are addressing them, it is absolutely unacceptable for us to take away the option to live a thriving and healthy life from anyone. So we need to make sure that access to abortion is there so that people can decide what they would like to do. Do I wanna start a family? Do I understand this risk? And do I want to take on that risk? And overwhelmingly, the answer is usually yes. Like, you know, the reason that all of us humans are here is because at some point a human decided, you know, um, that they were willing to take on that risk and responsibility, generally speaking. So I think it's really important for us to fully understand what we're asking people to do when we are telling them that now they are going to be forced to carry their pregnancy to term. I think it's also really important to understand like who and why and how people access abortion. And, you know, I want to be really clear that every single person who access, accesses an abortion, their reason is individual to them. Um, it is never the same experience for two people. But, you know, from listening to people and talking and hearing their stories, like the overwhelming majority of people just weren't ready yet. And so also by allowing them the time, you know, to grow into the person they wanted to, either emotionally or physically or financially, um, you know, to find a partner, you know, who was the right partner to do the work of raising a child with, the ability for them to decide when, when they knew it was a win, like one day they would want to, you know, just creates better outcomes for children and families moving forward. Yeah, and then the other point I want to bring up is our country and medicine in general has a horrific, like I don't even want to say necessarily history because it still happens either in attempts to have it happen or through policy and other decisions, but of sterilizing, especially with Black and Indigenous women, but also people who are differently abled, uh, what happened in Puerto Rico during, you know, the experiments to create birth control, we have actively controlled the bodies of BIPOC and differently abled people and LGBTQ people. And so 
we have to stop. And part of stopping means that we remove ourselves from the decisions that individuals get to make about their bodies. We remove ourselves, we remove the government, and we create systems and policies and places where people can access the information and education and resources that they want to make the decisions for themselves. And so it's completely unacceptable for us to tell certain communities that they are not allowed or capable or able to create families. And the reverse of that is also unacceptable. And we should not be making the decisions for people, telling them they have to. Okay. So there are two things that I want to bring up after listening to your answer. And the first is that I didn't always live in Alaska. For those who have listened for a long time, some of you know that I had lived in North Carolina for five years. I actually lived in Camp Lejeune. When I lived there, there was a point where I was living on base. And one of my neighbors was Maria Lauterbach. And Maria has this really sad story. She was a Marine who had been sexually assaulted that ended up getting her pregnant. And because she was pregnant, she was moved to housing for families. And I didn't know her too well. She was a Marine, so she was working a lot and she lived a couple houses down, but a lot of my neighbors had brought her welcome to the neighborhood, like gifts and tried to invite her to different outings, which is difficult for someone who is active duty to participate in. So I I do remember talking about her. And then one day there were a ton of MPs outside of her place. And that's because she was murdered by the person who had sexually assaulted her in order to prevent his wife from finding out what had happened. And that story had made national news. And that actually changed the law around how the Department of Defense handles sexual assault charges because of how their lack of helping her resulted in her death. And I think about her often, especially now, as I think about different states where abortion access has changed for people because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And it makes me wonder how many more people there will be like Maria out there who feel stuck, have nowhere to turn, have nobody who will believe them or help them, and who will end up in extremely dangerous situations like you had brought up yourself. The second thing I wanted to bring up was that I myself had to consider an abortion. I was a single parent to two children. I did not have a job. I was on six different medications, all except for one, which were bad for pregnancies. And I had to make a decision quickly. I either had to quit my medication cold turkey, which is extremely unhealthy, or terminate the pregnancy. And it was because of the abortion access that we have in Alaska and the support of all of the people who were my medical doctors. So whether they were a midwife or my psychiatrist, they were all trying to figure out how to help me get through what I could and make sure that I, 
I could handle what I was doing to my body, who really helped me realize that I could handle a pregnancy one more time. And I myself have always really struggled with pregnancies. They weren't like the kind that made me be on bed rest for most of the time. I don't think I could have handled that if I knew that that was coming, but they did disrupt my life in such a major way that it would make it difficult for me to continue my daily activities if I was working or if I was going to school, it would have really interrupted and and made things impossible for me to just do what everybody else would do normally. And so just having the knowledge that if what I was trying didn't work out, I, I would still have another step in order to make sure that I could still be there for my two older children made it possible for me to have my third child, who will now be my last. I cannot handle another pregnancy and going through the whole newborn and toddler phase again. While they are super adorable and I would I love to babysit and, and I love to dote on little babies and toddlers, I am done with that part of my life. And so even having abortion access isn't, it, it's helpful to more than just those who are wanting to make sure that they can continue to do what they're doing without disrupting their lives in too major of a way. It's also good for those who need to know they have a backup plan for the process they're in now. Thank you so much for sharing both of those stories. I really appreciate you sharing them and being vulnerable um, in general, but also because like I said, every single story is different, every single abortion story, every single birth story. And I think what's happened is there's so much shame and stigma that a really small amount of the population has managed to instill that it's boiled down then to something that isn't truly the experience of what having abortion access and listening to Sister Song and having a reproductive, gen- reproductive justice lens truly looks like right and so like what it truly looks like is you having the information and then having the support and not having to make one choice or the other because of only one factor and I'm so glad you brought up the medications that you were on and how difficult you know like one thing that I wanted to talk about later is there are so many people who are on life-saving medications either you know that helps them to physically support you know, the life that they want to live emotionally and mentally. And I have many friends who are like, I will not survive going off of my medication. Like this medication has saved my life and has allowed me, you know, and my suicidal ideations and my negative thoughts to not consume me. And I know that I wouldn't survive nine months off this medication. And we need to be listening and taking people's mental health seriously you know there are also people who struggle with addiction you know and so we need to be giving them the supports they need so that if they want a family they can have one when they're ready but we shouldn't be forcing them to have families when they know that they're not ready I just really appreciate your story you know and also there are so many people that do want children and need support in that process, you know, in the process of getting pregnant, in the process of carrying that child to term either. There are so many people who struggle, who desperately want to be pregnant, 
and struggle with fertility. And then there are so many people who desperately want to be pregnant and struggle through miscarriages. Um, and then there's so many people who have children and then their situations change and they need different supports than they thought they would. And all of that is deserving. And we should be creating communities and policies and places that are supporting everyone to have the education and the resources to make the decision that they want, not the decision that they're forced to make in any direction or the other. And I also really appreciate you sharing the first story. I do remember that I was living in North Florida, I think at the time, or maybe it's just because it was national news that I remember it. But again, I don't think that people fully understand the reality of what most people go through because we don't openly talk about especially abortion but miscarriage pregnancy you know how hard it is to have a kid how hard it is to even just be alive right now you know our conversations that we need to be more comfortable having and we absolutely do know and it's it's heart-wrenching I always feel very honored to be in this work right now but sometimes it is hard when I sit and I realize that right now someone was just assaulted and they are in a state that is going to force them to carry that pregnancy to term or to go out of their way and spend money and possibly be in danger in different ways to cross state lines. That's really hard to know that that is happening right now, given our country's sexual assault rates and the number of states that have banned abortion access. And also moving into how you said, you know, like you this was a wanted child and you needed support. And I just saw a story from Texas where a very wanted baby, very wanted pregnancy was going to result in a stillbirth, but she was not allowed to access an abortion or any medical care until her life was in danger. And so for days she had to sit knowing that her pregnancy would eventually miscarry, just waiting and then she did go septic and then was needed to be hospitalized for weeks simply because the state of Texas wouldn't allow her to access care. There was no other reason for any of that to happen. And even though she had resources, the reason they didn't travel was because they knew that if her situation went septic, she could have less than an hour to need to receive care. And so if she was on an airplane or, you know, in West Texas, somewhere away, from access to a hospital, then that would be dangerous for her. And so her and her husband had to sit waiting and also wondering, was he going to lose also his wife and life partner simply because the state of Texas decided that they disagreed morally, yeah, with protecting her life and that family. There's a lot of states where ectopic pregnancies, I have an ex-girlfriend who had an ectopic pregnancy um, and the idea that depending on where she lived now, that they may have just let her die or get to a point where then they couldn't do medical intervention is atrocious and devastating. Those types of stories are horrifying as someone who could possibly still get pregnant and as someone who cares about other people who can get pregnant. I know that I personally, as I've been reading different stories that have come out of different states, especially like the stories of the minors from Ohio, I'm just in tears because all, all of these girls and women and other genders who can get pregnant are, 
are at risk simply because of where they live, even though they're in the United States, they are a United States citizen with the same religious rights and and everything else. But now they have lost their personhood and no longer have the decisions to make choices over their own bodies, even though the situation is already devastating to begin with. It's It just makes it that much more horrific. Yeah. These realities for people are awful and unnecessary, but the same, you know, for the story that I don't know about, you know, of the person who like dreamed, you know, their whole life of what they wanted to do. And then they had an unplanned pregnancy that, you know, we know, again, thinking about the intersections of people's identities, does that, you know, then change their educational outcome, which then changes their ability to gain wealth, which, change, you know, and it's just like all of these people in all these different ways that aren't having the ability to make the choices to live fully realized and happy lives or set them up, you know, to have children in the future when they're ready to do that. Like I get, I, I know I said it before, but I just, in this work, one of the through lines of stories that I didn't expect was how many people were like, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be the parent I knew I could be, to have those couple years, that time to wait, to get things in order so that I could enjoy and feel proud and give the love to this child that's so, so wanted. And I think that's important. I also just wanted to say too, you know, when thinking about these stories that we've shared and so often, right, we'll hear from politicians and others to then have a carve out, right? Like, except in rape or incest, except in the life of the pregnant person. And I want to speak to one, the reality of those carve outs. In reality, those, even when they legally exist, functionally don't. Because when we think about sexual assault, most sexual assaults and rapes are done by people who you know. And so for you then to create a police report, which is what would be necessary in these exceptions in most places, isn't a reality for the safety of that person to file a police report. Or you might be in an unsafe relationship, and even though this was a stranger, it makes your unsafe relationship less safe. There are also many reasons why many people would not feel safe disclosing to the police to begin with. And so having a requirement for rape or incest is also a requirement then that this person has to disclose to others something very personal that they shouldn't have to disclose. Also, I've asked around and I don't have any like hard data, but most police reports take time. Um, and when you're trying to access an abortion, time is of the essence. You can't wait six months uh, to receive that police report. And so I think it's important for us to respect and honor each individual and not ask for us ourselves or the state to require proof of why this is necessary. All abortions are medically necessary because the person accessing that abortion has decided that it is a medical procedure that they need to access. And so there is no line and there should be no reason for justification. We don't ask people to justify other medical decisions 
I take that back. The LGBTQ plus community, we have been asked to justify many of our <laughs> medical decisions, but in general. Uh, so I just want to really point out why, you know, when we say abortion is healthcare and all abortion should be accessible, it is because we do not believe that you have to justify to anyone why you're making a medical decision. These are all very good points. And while I don't know the numbers for what, for the data that you were just sharing, the numbers that I often remind people of for the state of Alaska is that in cases of sexual assault, only one to 2% of perpetrators will see a day in jail. That's it. One to 2% of perpetrators across the state of Alaska will see the inside of a jail cell, which means that the majority of other perpetrators will not. And the majority actually will not even have a police report filed. So requiring a police report is pretty ridiculous when we don't actually fully fund our law enforcement and give them the resources they need to be able to keep up with this data. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that one to 2% is just of reported, correct? So it's like when you really think about the expansion um, of how many people are not reporting or disclosing to anyone, it is a staggeringly large number in Alaska. I, I do think it's overreported. It's been a while. I, I know these numbers because of Interior Alaska Center for Nonviolent Living, which, by the way, people, this month is, uh, okay, it is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And there's actually a... Uh, entire thing that you can see with information at the Noel Wayne Library right now for those who like to go to the library. You can go look at the stuff that the Interior Alaska Center for Nonviolent Living has put up there. All of this actually brings us to our next question. What else does the overturning of Roe v. Wade impact? Yeah, so we've touched on a lot, but you know, kind of to go through um, some of the things I touched on at the end, but just, you know, this is an economic justice issue. This is a workers' rights issue, um, in addition to being a reproductive justice issue. So again, being forced into pregnancy and the impacts that that has on your ability to receive an education, to maintain a job. There are, you know, provisions in place to protect pregnant people, but we know from talking to folks that how their bosses view them for promotions or advancement, there's still a lot of bias in beliefs around getting a promotion if you're someone who can or recently has decided to make a family. And so it has further implications for individuals throughout their life, but also for our communities and society as a whole, you know, having communities that are supported having resources for like how you you know I love that you had midwives available and you know like information during your pregnancy and then you know having quality child care you know for young children having a job that lets parents be at home with their children if that's what they choose to do you know right now like most people have six weeks and then they're back at work and that's only if you're the birth parent, you know, like most men don't have the ability to take paternity leave or family leave. And so 
I think it's really important to think through the economic and educational and emotional support aspects available to making sure that people have access to reproductive health care, you know, but we need to make other changes too. We need better, yeah, family leave. We need better medical leave. We need better early childhood education resources and, you know, fully funded and staffed and supportive schools. So it really does expand from being something so incredibly personal and sacred about if you decide to be a family and what that looks like to you that you know we can take something so personal but we know that we can create structures and systems and community supports that allow for that to be successful like you i was thinking of other ways that this would impact someone's medical care i know that in some states They are not just making it harder to access abortion, but they're making it harder to access birth control, which would make the need for abortion rise if if people are not able to access birth control that they know works for them or birth control at all. And then the I, I know for my people, one of the big things that we often think about when our rights are taken away is how... There, a, a lot of Indigenous women had been sterilized without being told or, you know, asked if they weren't being told, they weren't being asked, but they would assume they were going in for something else. And then later on, as they were trying to start a family, they would realize like after going to a doctor and saying, why is nothing working? They would realize that the what the procedure they had gone in for had also included sterilizations that way they could never have kids simply because of the judgments of some doctors who think that native people shouldn't raise kids in their own culture or try to raise them in in the colonized culture if if they were living like in a city somewhere um so those were the things that i was thinking of but the more i think about it the more i realize that this overturning of Roe v. Wade has sort of become a doorway for people to undo a lot of laws that have really progressed our nation, even if it's not in regards to reproductive health. For example, one of the Supreme Court justices on the federal Supreme Court was talking about looking at laws that protected people's rights to get married if they were not straight or looking at laws that ended segregation, which is confusing to me because this justice is not white. And I'm like, you do realize that you're opening the doorway to make it so your own marriage is illegal. And so your own kids don't have the access to the same stuff that the rest of, of not the rest of the United States, I guess, because his kids aren't the only people of color, but the your kids will be won't won't have as much access as say kids from um oh what's that my brain is blinking on like names of mostly white places. Connecticut, Vermont. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so it 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 really is frustrating how there are these connections being made uh where people are saying it themselves, but then they're dismissed by others because they don't see the connections. 
I appreciate you as a person so much. And I love how you just stated that so clearly, because it's absolutely true. The right to access an abortion has never been about abortion. And it has always been about power and control. And those in power want to control the rest of us. And that is absolutely what this manufactured culture war around abortion is rooted in. Republicans decades ago got together and really did write a list of things they thought they could make divisive and win elections on. And they decided abortion was one of those. And so they have manufactured a falsehood that the majority of people don't believe that abortion is a medical decision. Um, especially in Alaska, almost 80% of people don't believe that there should be a partial or abort like levels of abortion bans in the state. It is only a very small number of people, but they are very loud and they have been working at this for decades to make it seem like they are in the majority when they are not. And they are doing that because they want to maintain power and control. And so you are absolutely right in both the decision that came down in Dobbs and what we've seen like in places in Idaho where they are now going after birth control because that is a further way to control. And so we need to be believing these elected officials, uh, both in our state and across the country, when they show and tell us who they are. And we need to be taking action because they don't represent the majority of how Americans and Alaskans, you know, feel. Uh, they just have created spaces where that's the way that they make it seem. Right. So what happened in Idaho is um, I believe the university there has decided to interpret their abortion ban to also mean birth control, which is wild in and of itself. <laughs> but, you know, so now no longer allowing students to access uh, birth control and only allowing them to access condoms explicitly for the prevention of STI transmission, not as a contraceptive method. And so I absolutely agree with you that that's terrifying. And we're seeing things that we thought were basic human rights, like our right to make our own medical decisions, you know, and they said right in that decision, their intentions of other things, you know, and one of them is marriage equality, which is terrifying thinking about how marriage equality is, you know, again, like Roe was like the floor, not the ceiling, right? Marriage equality is the floor. Like me being able to like come into my partner's hospital room right or have them inherit you know my belongings is like a base <laughs> you know of capitalism um it shouldn't be you know the dream that we all had for each other and i also you know thinking through those sorts of things like an access to birth control you know an ability for lgbtq folks to like love who they love when it comes down to them expanding the power and control like when i talked to a lot of people older than me uh and they remember when birth control became actually accessible. They were like, that was the revolutionary moment. Being able to love and be in relationships, right? And still make future plans for myself that I didn't have to choose either or. I didn't have to choose love and being a human and feeling you know, passion and connection with 
going to school and having a career and being independent financially to make other decisions for myself. The access, you know, the access to birth control is like access ostensibly to being human and getting to like experience life and love and relationships and your goals. And so that's the next level of power and control. Like, let's make everyone afraid to be in love. Let's make everyone afraid <laughs> and confused and then take away further choices. And so, yeah, it's really scary. <laughs> and I know your next question, like, what do we do about it? You know, and like I said, like, we need to believe elected officials that they aren't just going to stop at one human right, at one basic right. I absolutely agree with you. And they've told us um, in many ways that they plan on rolling back a lot of issues, not just in the Dobbs decision, but a lot of Supreme Court decisions that came down this last term uh, really are altering and changing what I think a lot of us thought were basics in the floor of president and law in America. And we're seeing a quick and drastic change. Well, you had already mentioned my next question and answered part of it, but is there anything else that you'd recommend that we do right now? Yes, <laughs> there are lots of things. You know, first and foremost, we need to vote. Is voting the solution? No. Is voting a part of the solution? Absolutely. Hannah Hill, who I adore, told me, you know, voting is an act of harm reduction. It is harm reduction for myself, for me personally, as a queer person, as someone who can get pregnant. It is harm reduction for my community and the potentialities of me into the future of things I don't even know that I might need. And so we absolutely need to vote. You know, those Supreme Court justices were appointed by an elected president. And so we need to fully hear that through line that who we elect will be in positions of power to make decisions for us on a myriad of issues, not just our right to abortion access. And right now in Alaska, in the Alaska State House, we have a tripartisan majority, which is the only one in the nation. So independents, Democrats, and Republicans all come together to create a majority to vote on things as a block, ostensibly. And we only have that majority by one elected official. And so should we lose that tripartisan majority, then we very well will start to see our ability to access healthcare erode in Alaska. And we know that because they've shown us, because they have brought a constitutional amendment to the legislature to try to ban abortion, to remove it from our constitution. We have seen in years recently, the legislature try to remove funding for abortion and abortion-related care from the Medicaid budget. So ostensibly saying, if you're wealthy and you can pay for your own care, then you are allowed to have the care that you want. And if you are someone who right now is receiving help from the state, then you no longer can access this specific care. And the wording change to even saying um, related to abortion uh, then tells us, right, ectopic pregnancies. People who, you know, like we were talking earlier, the life of the mother, of the pregnant person, that doesn't count. We know that they're going to try to do that. We've had a birth control bill um, in the state legislature for years now, simply just allowing 
for everyone in Alaska to have the same access. So for example, when I lived in Cantwell, I needed to go on birth control to help with perimenopause. But at the time, there was no pharmacy in Cantwell. And I was on Medicaid. And so I had to borrow a car and drive in the last seven days of every month, because it had to be in the last seven days, to pick up my next month of birth control. So I took a day off work every month, borrowed a car, paid for gas to drive the three hours to Fairbanks to pick up a medication that had been prescribed to me for an entire year, simply because of my location and my economic standing at the time. If I was wealthy or lived somewhere else, I would have had different access. And so we have a bill for birth control, which is very uncontroversial, that has failed to pass the legislature for years. And there's no reason for that. You know, if we get out there and we elect people that support reproductive health care, then we won't just be protecting, but expanding. But if we don't get out there and we get a governor or a Senate or a House that, you know, want to do things like ban birth control access, you know, remove in every way that they can legally access to abortion, even for those in urban hubs. Like they have shown us that that is their intention. And so we need to get out and we need to vote and we need to knock on doors. Planned Parenthood has endorsed candidates. So we are working to get proven champions elected because champions are what we need. So you can come knock on doors with us. You can call from your home. Uh, We do targeted lists. So you're calling people who support us and genuinely most of the time are very excited to hear from us and want to know and talk with you about candidates who support reproductive health care and abortion access and are very grateful and happy. And, you know, I've been offered hot chocolate and ice cream when I've like knocked on doors. You know, it's generally like people who are very excited um, to hear from us. And so I think too, like, and I know you, like we go to a lot of school board meetings and city council meetings and other meetings. And every time I'm there trying to plead for mine or others basic humanity. I think about how that hour could have been much better spent electing someone in the first place who saw my basic human dignity as something to protect and respect um, and not something to try to strip away. So, you know, even just like I did it, I texted like 150 people in the Fairbanks election and I was like, I know this is annoying, but I'd rather you be annoyed with me than not remember to vote. Um, You know, just this is just a reminder to go vote. And this is why it's important to me. You know, I was like, as a queer person, as a teacher, you know, I want every kid that comes through the Fairbanks North Starborough School District to feel loved and welcomed. And a piece of that is electing people who feel the same way. So that's the piece we're working on right now. There's also then, you know, getting those people elected and then helping to support them in legislation that we know can be extremely helpful. So moving forward, after we get all our champions elected on November 8th, we are looking towards getting that birth control access bill passed. We are looking towards um, hopefully getting some uh, fully inclusive statewide sex education standards passed. Um, We're going to need a lot of help with that. It is wildly popular, over 90%. Of people in Alaska, including parents and families, believe that high quality inclusive sex education um, should be an age appropriate part of the curriculum. 
in a state with some of the highest STI rates in the nation, some of the highest teen pregnancy rates in the nation, and some of the highest sexual assault and domestic violence rates in the nation, we should be openly communicating with children about how to care for their own bodies and the bodies of others, right? Like how to give and receive a no, how to give and receive a yes when that feels right and knowing when that is right, and then having the information to stay safe in your body around that. So there is lots that we can do, and I'm excited for everyone who can do it with me. So then the other thing I wanted to say around that is also there will be a constitutional convention ballot question uh, for voters to decide. So the constitutional convention is every 10 years on the ballot in the state of Alaska is the question, shall we hold a constitutional convention? And we are wholeheartedly encouraging everyone to vote no, because we know that they intend to remove the right to access an abortion should we hold a constitutional convention. So the other important aspect of ballots in Alaska on November 8th will be that it's our time again to be asked, should we hold a constitutional convention? So every 10 years, uh, this is on the Alaska ballot, and every time it's appeared, voters have said no. But this year, there is a push by anti-abortion extremists and other religious zealots and far-right folks to open up our Constitution explicitly because they hope to remove the right to access an abortion, as well as other really important rights um, protected by our state Constitution. So I've talked to a lot of people, and they're like, well, yeah, government you know, needs to be fixed, so let's hold a constitutional convention. But the way that it would be created. It's not just like a shared Google Doc by everyone in the state putting their feelings in, um, but delegates, how delegates were selected would be decided by the legislature. So people in the legislature would get to make that decision. And then voters would vote, very similar probably to how we already do for state government on those delegates. And then those delegates would completely rewrite our constitution. So thinking about who is in power um, and those that hold power right now, I don't trust them to create a system or to put forward delegates that I think share my values or the values of other Alaskans. And although I do think there are lots of things that need to be changed and fixed and revised in our constitution and in the legislature and in policy, we actually in Alaska have a system to do that already, which is the constitutional amendment process. Alaskans have amended our state constitution almost more than any other state, I'm pretty sure. Um, so, you know, if there is something in there that we all agree needs to be changed um, or updated or added, then there's a process that already has happened here to do that, but to completely open and or rewrite our constitution would mean you know, that we would lose so many of the protections that we hold dear and again, like are the floor and not the ceiling. So when we look at things like tribal rights, hunting and fishing rights, subsistence rights, you know, there aren't LGBTQ statewide protections. And we know, again, from looking at what they've done, you know, the same way they've tried to restrict abortion access and restrict access to birth control and sex education. We also have seen an inability to create state protections for LGBTQ folks 
and a concerted effort last time to target trans children um, and trans youth with uh, Sarah Vance's anti-trans youth sports bill. And so, you know, there is a possibility, like a extreme possibility, should we hold a constitutional convention that not only rights and protections that we currently have would most likely disappear, but we could also see our constitution created in a way that completely removes our access to abortion, to LGBTQ rights that potentially criminalize when we look at Texas and their law laws that have passed, we could become a state that criminalizes providers or friends for even helping people that they care about and love leave the state to access an abortion, to access gender affirming care. You know, these are absolute realities that could occur should we hold a constitutional convention. So thank you so much for bringing up voting and all of the different things that we'll be voting on. I 100% agree. I want to remind everyone that after our most recent election, where we voted on people who were on the borough assembly and on the school board, as well as people who are on the Burbanks and North Pole city councils and mayor, which I guess the mayor is part of the city council, but whatever. Right after that election, the Fairbanks Daily News Miner wrote an article about how low the number of people who voted in that election was because less than 20% of registered voters in our borough actually voted on these elected officials. And these are the people who make decisions about plowing the snow, about fully stocking the Fairbanks Police Department, making sure that they have enough staff to have different positions filled, such as the position that looks for missing people, to making sure our firefighters are not working overtime because they can't they can't just leave. There there have to be people there for emergencies, to making sure that our sex educators in schools have the resources to be able to explain things to our children and teenagers who do have questions, especially once they get closer to that teenage stage. They're like, how exactly does this work? What exactly does this mean? And these are all things that you have already pointed out are very important. So please, uh, if you are a resident in the state of Alaska, Make sure that you're registered to vote. Uh, Look up if you can be registered to vote if you are not. And sign up with Planned Parenthood to help. I'll make sure there's links to sign up in the description. And make a plan to vote. Because if you make that plan, you're more likely to vote. Just make sure you use your voice. Because now you get to decide who's going to make all these laws. And you get to decide if we're going to have a constitutional convention. Yeah, thank you for that. I think it's so important to talk about the percentage of people that vote, because I think there's a side that's created a false narrative that Alaska is super red or super unwelcoming or, you know, super anti-reproductive health. And that's actually not the case. It's just that, you know, less than 20% of people are deciding the outcomes for the rest of us. And I think if we all showed up to vote, then we would be pleasantly surprised um, at the changes that government can make to help support us, you know, from everything, like how you said, like how the snow is removed, Um, you know, when we complain about government not working, you know, a piece of that is that we don't have people who want to work for us in government. 
And this is our chance and our opportunity to change that. And there are some really genuinely amazing and exciting candidates in this state election. And I hope people will show up and vote for them. So because we keep talking a lot, we start answering some of these questions before we get to them. So we've already started to answer this one. But my next question is, is abortion attacked within our state? And how seriously should we take every bill that tries to limit access or other aspects of abortion access? Yes, thank you for this question. We should take every bill extremely seriously. Like I said, we currently have a governor who is anti-reproductive health. One of the bills that makes it to where there is not currently sex ed across the state of Alaska, and that bill was brought by our now Governor Dunleavy. He ostensibly um, made it almost impossible for districts to create and adopt and continue to adapt um, sex ed curriculums across the state. Uh, he does not, you know, want to expand access uh, to things that are not controversial like birth control. We have a Senate who is hostile to reproductive health, and we have the simple one vote majority in the House of Representatives. And so every single time a bill is brought, there is an extreme possibility that it passes and is signed um, by our legislature and our governor. We also know that they try many, many ways, like I had said earlier, not just with being upset about our constitutional right and so wanting to change that. Our legislature has three times passed laws that they knew were illegal and against our constitution to restrict abortion access. And our state Supreme Court has overturned those, um, including now requiring the state to pay all of our legal fees because they knew very well that what they were doing was illegal or unconstitutional. And they were simply trying to drain our funds and resources to further affect our ability to provide care. And so they are now required to pay for our legal fees. And how I said, when they try to do things through budget amendments, so again, those intersections of race and class and accessibility, and they've shown us time and time again that they intend to go after those that are most vulnerable and who need support from the state and their communities right now by trying to eliminate abortion funding from Medicaid. There's many, many ways that the state could restrict or prohibit or further exasperate inequalities in access. And so we need to take all of them seriously. It always boggles my mind how different elected officials will try to do things that impact people who are poor more often when you know the result is not going to help those who are poor leave their status of being poor. It's just going to make it that much harder. And Part of me gets it because I did grow up going to Bible Baptist Church where I'm like, okay, I get that they shut off parts of their brain when it comes to different topics and they're trained to do that. However, don't they stop and look at somebody who's already on food stamps and they're judging for being on food stamps and think, how will this help them get off of food stamps if they have another mouth to feed in five months? Yeah. I mean, and I think for those in power, it's because it's about power and control. It's not about compassion and care. Right. And I remember when we were little and we were on food stamps, when it was the actual stamps. And so my older sister never wanted to go to the grocery store with us because the other kids in her high school worked at the register and she didn't want them to know that we were poor because 
she had so much shame around it, which I understand because she'd been conditioned to have that. And I remember even as a little kid, just being so irate and being like, everyone else should be ashamed in themselves that we don't have enough food. (laughs) You know, I was like, my mom is the most caring, hardest working person I have ever met. And I was like, everyone else should feel shame every time we walk in here and are told we can only buy a certain kind of peanut butter or have to put our toilet paper back because it's not food. So it's not covered by food stamps. It's incredible, like you said, right? Like the mental gymnastics that people can do when they say they're caring for someone when that's not the reality of what's happening at all. So my next question is more of a fun one for me because I love to look at the myths of things because as I just mentioned, I went to Bible Baptist Church where I heard a lot of myths about a lot of things What are some common myths about abortion and abortion access that we should know about? Yeah, thank you. I also now I'm like, after this, I want to pick your brain and be like, what do you hear? (laughs) So, you know, a huge myth, right, that we hear is that people use abortion as birth control when that is just not the case. People use birth control as birth control and abortion as a healthcare option if having a pregnancy Um, at that point is not what is correct for them. Another myth that I get a lot, especially here in Alaska, is that plan B is an abortificant, is abortion. It is not. Plan B, which is a pill that you can take uh, after unprotected sex or your other birth control method failing, and it works the same as birth control, because it is birth control, does not allow a fertilized egg to be implanted. It's not an abortificant. And then I think another myth that I hear a lot is around like age and reasoning. And I think, like I said before, that every abortion has its own unique story. And we know that more than 50% of abortions are by people who already have children. And so I think kind of to what you were saying, you know, is there's all these other reasons after you already have a couple kids where having another child is not the best choice for you or your family or, you know, your safety level around being off of your medications or your age or, you know, there's just so many reasons, but I think there is a stereotyped idea around who accesses abortions and why, and that is just wildly untrue. But open to some myths you've heard if you have any. Um, I've heard all of the ones that you talked about. I've also heard that I forget what stage they become a fetus, but I remember hearing about how much pain they go through and how horrible the procedures are for like earlier pregnancies. Like say if you're nine weeks along and you just found out that you're pregnant because you're really busy and and you realize that you had missed a period and you make that appointment with the doctor and the doctor confirms it and is like, you're nine weeks along. Then if you had the, the myths that I had heard was that if you decided to get an abortion, then that it would actually be a surgical abortion where there's this claw going after this little tiny fetus that looks like a person who's deathly afraid. And it's, that's not what happens at all. If you are nine weeks or if this ever happens to you in the future and abortion is something that you start thinking about, please talk to your medical providers and ask them about the process of the clinic that you're at 
or the clinics that they have access to, because they'll be able to tell you better what it would look like and what the process is actually like and what to expect. I remember my middle child, who is now 11, when they were, I think, six, I had posted something about how a fetus won't feel pain until at least 20 weeks, but likely not till after that. One of my aunts was like, how do you know? And I was like, that's when that part of your brain develops. Like that's when your brain is starting to develop and, and you're able to possibly feel pain, but it's, it's probably likely not until like 22 or 24. I don't, I'm not a medical doctor. Don't quote me on the dates exactly. But I remember that was one of the myths that I had learned about as realizing that it was a myth when I was an adult after watching, I think, what's that movie? It has, it's about the Christian girl who gets pregnant in school and hides it and becomes friends with the outcasts in the Christian school she went to. Is it Juno? I don't think so. Cause she no, it has Mandy Moore as one of the other characters. Oh, we're going to have to Google it after this. Cause okay, <laughs> yeah. I um, it. But no, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you bringing that up because that is actually, yes, a very common myth. Um, and you are correct. The part of the brain that would even begin to be able to register pain um, doesn't develop until later in a fetal development stage. But again, we don't know if that fetus is actually feeling pain or interpreting pain, how we would interpret pain, you know? I know it doesn't seem that way, but also how we interpret pain is, you know, different from our physiology individually, but also culturally different. Um, when you ask different cultures how people in those cultures experience, experience period pain, it is wildly experienced differently, showing that, you know, even our interpretations of pain are experienced in, in different ways and more than we could ever understand. But yes, the majority of abortions are performed when the um, pregnancy is just a group of cells. Uh, and so I do think that's like a very large myth that, you know, anti-abortion uh, folks have perpetuated these images right of a fully gestated fetus um, and we have those time life images of fetal development and so I think we are misaccurately remembering and then getting misinformation about fetal development stages and when the majority of abortions are performed and the majority are performed before I believe it's 16 weeks or 20 weeks and then also, yeah, how you said, like, this idea of what the procedure is versus what it really is, is also drastically different. And also, we have had amazing advancements in medication abortion, or MAB. And so now you can also choose depending on, again, having to talk to your doctor or medical professional about which procedure is the one that you feel is best for you for many reasons, but that is now an option where you can take two different medications uh, and receive a medication abortion. So not needing any surgical uh, procedure or requirement, but yes, it is not a cloth <laughs> um, in any of these uh, surgical or medication abortion and the majority are performed um, when the pregnancy is simply a group of cells that's almost unidentifiable. Another myth that I want to bring up 
is actually about Planned Parenthood. I grew up being told time and time again that if you go to Planned Parenthood, they will push for you to get an abortion, no matter what your status is. And I can say from being friends with many people who have worked at Planned Parenthood that this is not the case. Planned Parenthood advocates for their patients. And I know that you're not on the medical side of Planned Parenthood, but um, I'm sure you can verify this. Yes, 100%. We are not there to make your healthcare decisions for you. We are there to let you know about your options and all of your choices uh, so that you can have the information and education to make the one that's right for you. You know, so our pregnancy and abortion services involve counseling and education and figuring out what is the next step for this person and then helping them either internally because we have those resources available or helping them to get to those resources. You know, you, yeah, a really common myth is I'll get stories in our story box all the time that are like, I came here for a pregnancy test and you told me I'm pregnant and I'm so excited. <laughs> so that's another myth, right? Like people come to us for their reproductive health care. And like, sometimes that is like very excited and wanted news, you know, and then we can help them get referred to an OBGYN or a midwife or a doula um, or whatever that next stage is for them, you know, or adoption and talking to those agencies. So yeah, we absolutely are only there as a resource for medical decisions. We are in no way, shape or form telling anyone what that decision should be. And then I think the last myth that I heard is about the selling of fetuses to a wide variety of hated products by certain groups. So because I went to Bible Baptist Church, these products often included makeup because they were trying to discourage people from wearing too much makeup. It also included any foods they didn't like or uh, vaccines for the, for those within the church, because that's it's not a church rule to be anti-vax. The former pastor or current, I'm, I'm not sure what the setup is right now. I know they're changing leadership, but they're taking their time doing it. But the pastor who I had grown up with was actually very pro-vaccine. However, there were a lot of people within the church who were anti-vax and who would use use this as an excuse. And as someone who was anti-vax and researched my way out of it, as well as someone who's watched a ton of people make makeup on YouTube and things like TikTok and other products that I had brought up, like this is not what's happening when... Uh, with the fetuses that are aborted within our state or any other state. Yeah, I just don't know what to say. I'm trying to think of, <laughs> it's just so ridiculous, you know? It's just so ridiculous, these myths. And I think you made such a great, clear example with makeup, and it's because they didn't want you to wear makeup, right? That is absolutely, you know, fetal tissue is human tissue. You know, different states have different ways you know, that all tissues, right, and needles and anything with human blood needs to be adequately, you know, disposed of and kept, you know, in different ways to make sure that people stay safe um, from bloodborne illnesses. So no, um, we are not selling them. Uh, we wouldn't, and it's illegal. And we do know in science that stem cells 
probably hold some secrets that would improve the medical outcomes and lives of people. And so I think that is where this probably started was from science talking about the potential benefits of stem cells and stem cell research. But that is not something that America participates in. Right. And as someone who has given birth three times and filled out the paperwork, you can get stem cells from a live birth if you fill out the paperwork ahead enough a time that they can get all of the stuff together for you to collect the stem cells from your own child to use either later in case something happens to them or if say if one of my kids was sick and there was some sort of stem cell type of procedure that they could use to help them and then I filled out the paperwork early enough for my third child then it's possible that they would be able to use the stem cells from my third child to help my my older child so it's not something scary when you hear the word stem cells it just means that they collected cells during the birth of somebody which is amazing. I'm like, human bodies are amazing. <laughs> you know, like we grow other humans and then those other humans have like potentially like this secret, you know, that can be used to help them later. Like, yeah, I just find it incredible. And bodies are amazing. Our bodies are amazing. Like I recently learned that our fallopian tubes, if we lose one, the one that we have left will travel across our uterus to either side to make sure that our eggs from from both, uh, I want to say ovulums, whatever gives us the eggs, the egg holders, the egg sacs <laughs> um, on both sides, that fallopian tube will just go back and forth to either side uh, each month. So that way you don't miss, you don't miss one. And I learned that recently, something I should have learned in sex ed. Yeah, bodies are amazing. And I, I like calling them egg sacs. I think that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, we should also take our bodies a little less seriously sometimes. You know? <laughs> a lot about being human is frankly ridiculous. And then other parts of it are amazing. Yeah. Like how we, we're so scared of things that look like us, but then our dogs and cats think we're just adorable. They're just like, oh, look at that human. That human of mine is just so adorable. And it's like, what are you, dog? <laughs> I think you're adorable. What's wrong with your taste? <laughs> I was talking with someone today about moose and they were just like, they just don't make any sense. There's no way around it. Why are they that big? <laughs> like, why <laughs> that easily? <laughs> like, none of this makes sense. And I was like, yeah, that's true. So on to our last question. Is there a question that I don't know enough to ask? And what is the answer? Yes, this is my favorite question. Because I think, you know, the unknown unknown, you know, it's always like, I just don't know. So I did give this a lot of thought. The question that I'm thinking is um, just why do we say pro-abortion access instead of pro-choice now here at Planned Parenthood? And so just wanted to briefly touch on that like linguistic shift. And first off, just saying pro-abortion access because we want to remove that stigma Abortion is not a dirty or shameful word that we need to tiptoe around or be afraid to say. Um, and part of removing that stigma is by just saying the word abortion. Abortion is healthcare. But another aspect of that that I think is 
really important, you know, is also that shift away from this being um, seen as a woman's issue. And that's not in any way to degrade those that have come before me, you know, and others in this movement or those that exist now, right? Like my friend Alyssa, when I shine and you shine, we're not dull, we're brighter together, you know? And this is absolutely an issue that affects women. But trans women are women, trans men are men, gender, non-binary, non-conforming people can all get pregnant um, and should not be removed from this conversation, like full stop. And then in addition to that is that by refusing to say abortion and calling it a woman's issue is also removing men and other family members and community members from the conversation. And each person who can get pregnant is ultimately the decision maker in if and when and how to have a baby. But the reality is, is that most people who get pregnant are women and they have husbands and partners and other men in their life who they enter into that conversation with. You know, going back to those myths, like the majority of people who get pregnant don't make the decision to have or not have a child in a vacuum. And they make that decision with their husbands and their partners or their families or their support network or their friends. And I think by saying it's only a women's issue, even though it is the majority of cis women who are getting pregnant, is also removing accountability from a lot of people who should be accountable in this conversation. You know, because you're a male politician doesn't mean you shouldn't be advocating for abortion access. You one day might be part of a family that gets pregnant. You will have mothers and sisters and other family members who are directly affected by this issue but you will also you know pay taxes for school systems and want a doctor you know who's fully educated like there's all of these aspects where although again like not to say that it's not a woman's issue but it's a community issue it's a human rights issue and we all should be in this conversation and the other thing I'll say about that is by insisting that only women can get pregnant and this is a woman's issue further perpetuates this idea that the ultimate idea of womanhood is getting pregnant and carrying a pregnancy to term. And there are lots of women who that's not what being a woman is for them, but it also erases and adds shame to all of the women who really want to be pregnant, who want to carry a pregnancy to term, but struggle with fertility, struggle with carrying that child to term, you know, and having miscarriage after miscarriage that they feel shame and seclusion about that they can't talk with members of their community or maybe even other members of their family. And so by saying we are pro-abortion access, by insisting that this is a women and family and community issue, we bring everyone into the conversation, which just further helps remove the shame, which I think ultimately moves us towards community care uh, and better healthcare outcomes and elected officials who also feel that way and talk that way and advocate um, wholeheartedly for all of us to have healthcare access that we deserve. So thanks for that question. Thank you so much for bringing up so many different issues that I agree with. And I have seen people right here in our community struggle with. I myself do not identify as a woman. I identify as Sipinik, which is 
the third gender of the Anubiat people along the North Slope. So while I have given birth three times, I find it sometimes awkward to put myself in the same group uh, where it's like, this is for, this is a group for women, because then I'm like, well, I mean, I, I sort of fit here, but at the same time, not really. And so that's just my personal experience. And then I do know, like, again, I grew up in Bible Baptist church where that was the entire role of the woman who attended the church was for them to grow up, get married, have lots of kids, raise their kids, and then cook and clean the house. And if they can't have kids, it really put a lot of pressure on their family and sometimes started rumors where people would be wondering if if she had sinned somehow that caused her to not be able to have children when the reality is is that there are so many different issues that could cause those types of problems and you don't even know if your deity is the right one or if that's something he would do assuming your deity is a he at at this church it was a he but it just it caused so much damage and pain and I really like the idea of changing it from pro-choice to abortion access because pro-choice puts all of the assumption on the person who's making the choice like I used to say well I'm pro-choice for everybody else but pro-life for myself back when I was a Christian and somebody else pointed out to me that I was still pro-choice. I just had already made the decision for myself at that point in time. And I kind of stopped and thought about it. And I was like, you know what? That's right. That's definitely right. And then as I learned more about abortion access and all of the ways it impacts different communities, as well as how those who make the rules for abortion access often use abortion for for things even when they don't agree with it like say if they have a mistress who finds out she's pregnant they'll use an abortion in order to keep their marriage intact and in order to not be on the tabloids only then to have their mistress come out i think about all of these things and i'm just i think abortion access does keep the people accountable who should be held accountable which is the people who make the rules about the access that we have to it instead of making each person decide what they would choose in their situation and whether or not they would choose that for somebody else. You know, and bringing everyone into the conversation, you know, the way that is in good relation with the people, you know, also in that conversation and making decisions, you know, by bringing in men and trans folks and gender nonconforming folks, it (sighs) doesn't in any way mean that to be a woman is less, you know, it just means like, everyone is amazing and who everyone is is valued and supported and listened to and loved i always love your i just love your podcast and i love your insights by the way thank you so much okay peoples this is where i'm going to wrap it up i want to thank rose o'hara jolly for coming onto the show and having this amazing discussion with us i hope you've learned a lot from them and that you'll sign up to volunteer for them and the other Planned Parenthood Alliance advocates. And then I would also like to thank my donors. If you would like to donate to me, go to caffeinewithkunan.com. Kunan is spelled K-U-N-A-A-N. 
I would also like to thank KWRK for airing out our podcast each week. It has been super helpful, and I really appreciate all of the work that you do for myself and other Alaskans. And then remember that we care about you. And right now, it is getting cold outside. And currently, our warming centers do not have enough funding to stay open. So if you can, please donate hats, gloves, warmers, soft foods, things like that to the rescue mission and the breadline in order to give out to people so that way they can stay warm and write to our city council and ask them to fund a warming station because every life matters. And that includes the lives of those who are currently unsheltered. Bye, peoples. (laughs) 